and I'd been to so many countries, but not one of them had mentioned that they have been to or plan on going to Mongolia. And from that point, I was just like, yeah, Mongolia, why isn't anyone going there? So we found $10 bikes. We had no pump, no puncture repair kit, string on the side of the road that we used to strap our rucksack onto the back. You know, we were chased by dogs, hit by mopeds, dodged by lorries. Welcome to the Adventure Diaries podcast, where we share tales of adventure, connection, and exploration. From the smallest of creators to the larger-than-life adventurers, we hope their stories inspire you to go create your own extraordinary adventures. And now your host, Chris Watson. Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Diaries. Today, we're here to talk to an extreme adventurer, athlete and author about three of his world-first expeditions, his missions in Mongolia, in Madagascar, and the epic mission Yangtze, where he trekked the entire length of the Yangtze River, sourced to sea, an incredible 6,500 kilometres. He's been named the UK Adventurer of the Year and is the current UK Tourism Ambassador to Madagascar. He's also the author of the book Mission Possible. So settle in and enjoy this conversation with Ash Dykes. Ash Dykes, welcome to the Adventure Diaries. How are you? Good to be here. It's been quite the adventure this morning for both of us, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, te- technology at its best. Uh, what more yeah, could you ask for? in the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, no, firstly, r- really honoured to have you here. I've been buzzing for this conversation uh, since we got this uh, diarised. So... Uh, as a way of introduction, for those that don't know, Ash Dykes, uh, an extreme adventurer, an athlete, an author, most notable for your three world firsts in your missions uh, across Mongolia, Madagascar, and Mission Yangtze, which we will come to uh, later. You know, recognised by the Guinness Book uh, of World Records. You've been named Adventurer of the Year at the UK Ambassador for Tourism to, to Madagascar, amongst many other things. And I think it all started back in old Colwyn Bay in Wales. <laughs> yes. Yes, it did. Sleepy little town there. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that where your adventures were inspired? Or So take us to, I mean, I want to touch a little bit on your UK and some of the stuff in Thailand and, and Australasia before we get into your mission. So coming back to the UK, how did it all start? I think it, you know, as a youngster, I was always very athletic into my sports in school. I was in the the football team, the rugby team, athletics, running club, you name it. So I was always very athletic. Um, And again, you know, I was raised in old Colwyn. Um, I've got my mum, my dad, my older sister, younger brother. Uh, You know, it's a sleepy old town. There's not much happening there. It's difficult to sort of make it because there's not much money invested in into the place. But it's also a beautiful place, you know, it's on the coast, you've got the mountains, the lakes, the forests, and, you know, I was at school called Uskol Brunelian, um, that's where I was till I was 15, 16, and then, you know, from there I moved on to Flangerflo College, which was just down the road, it's normally where everyone goes on to from that, from that school, and I was doing a BTEC National Diploma in Outdoor Education, um, and it was just a two-year course, you know, and it, it was... It was good. It was like 50% sort of hands-on practical um, sort of qualifications that you're gaining over the two years, but uh, also a lot of theory as well with the academic side. And 
I think it was this course where I really found that I was a, a kinesthetic learner, you know, learning more through making mistakes and, you know, trial and error, uh, hands-on practical experience. And I guess growing up, I was always, whilst I loved the physical side of, you know, competition, I always had this wanderlust and curiosity for the world and for myself. I would say, you know, I know it's a it's a big world. There's still lots to see and do. And for myself, I wanted to I wanted to develop. I wanted to face more adversity. I wanted to turn from a boy to a man. Throw myself out there in uncomfortable, awkward, embarrassing, but also dangerous situations and scenarios, and kind of see how I how I learn from that and how I react to that. Because you know, I feel you don't really learn until you face something far out of your comfort zone and then you realize sort of what you're made of and the more that you can push yourself uh, I guess you'll um, figure yourself out a lot quicker in a way and you know but this was all this was just all thinking this was all ideas you know I I don't come from a financial background um, you know the thought of me going off and, and, and traveling in the first place just seemed daunting but I guess one year into my college course, having seen all of the rest of the students go to the military or university, I just knew that neither of those were for me. And, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to, I was a bit more of a free spirit. Um, but at the same time, I was what, I loved the idea of traveling, but I was making three pound, 10 pence an hour in a fish and chip shop in Wales. <laughs> so, you know, I needed to, really manage my expectations and sort my shit out if I wanted to, uh, you know, go the unorthodox route and do something that, you know, back in 2008, when the first, when the idea first came to mind, not many people were really doing that. It's a case of go to college, then go to university, get your degree, maybe get your master's, settle down. Um, and that for me, you know, that just, it wasn't happening <laughs> and I didn't let it. <laughs> Awesome. I think it's safe to say that you've ticked a few of those challenges and adversities and, and everything else, which we'll come on to. I mean, it's some of your your list of adventures are, are phenomenal. Can, can you touch on some of the ones in the UK first before we get to the more extreme? I think, well, I suppose... You know, you've done some stuff in, in Britain for, for charity, haven't you? Some walks and cycles and stuff. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And that was actually, some of that stuff was before I set off for traveling and some of it was sort of midway through. I came back, top up the funds, um, done a couple of adventures and then headed back out traveling again. But yeah, you know, I've walked the, the length of Wales in the dead of winter. That was pretty miserable. That was... Um, I think it took us, it was just over 200 miles, the route that we took. And I think it took seven days, no, nine days it took. And it was just, we had like six, seven hours day daylight. It was just raining. It was snowing. We got hit by all seasons. It was, it was mad. Uh, and again, we just took a, a waterproof tent, me and my friend Martin. And, you know, it was just kind of a random idea, but I, I saw that as part of training for Mongolia. That's when I was actually preparing for Mongolia. And the, U, the UK cycle that I did, that was, I actually came back from traveling at age 20 or 21 with the idea to become the fastest person to cycle around the planet. Um, and I was in touch with those who had done it before and they gave me tips and advice. So I actually returned back to the UK 
and they said if you can do 100 miles a day for six days then you know you're you're fine there's no reason why you can't just keep doing that and so I did I came back cycled the UK I was averaging 150 miles a day for seven days the last day was over 200 miles and I thought yeah you know this would be great if I can get the right team the right logistics in place um then you know I'm not on the right finance why can't I do this but then at the same time, whilst I was cycling through the UK, that's all as I was doing is just pedaling. And I was just bypassing these beautiful areas and I wouldn't stop really to see them because I was on a time limit, you know. And then I thought if I'm going to cycle around the world and go through stunning places, you know, Pakistan, India, Iran, I'm not even going to be able to take time out to enjoy those places, then that's not what I want. Um, so that's the, originally why I cycled the UK. And, you know, whilst I was doing that, I was raising funds for the NSPCC as well. Uh, and that was, again, you know, just a bicycle. I took panniers, a tent. Uh, I took a little map and my phone I had for that. And, yeah, I think I did it in seven days. Lands end to, to John O'Groats. Got lost so many times, but it was it was good. Uh, that's I mean, that is, that's pretty incredible. I, I do understand that. I mean, you, you would miss the kind of local interactions, the cultural side of things, if you're just whizzing through places on a, on a kind of yeah. clock, really. Yeah. Yeah. See that, obviously, thinking about Wales, you know, 200-mile uh, trek, was Mongolia and further your, your other missions on your mind? Because if you look at, you know, the kind of structure of that 200 miles, then, uh, you know, 1,500 miles and so on, and all the way up to, you know, 4,000 in the Yangtze, was this a conscious thing that you'd done? Um, at that point, when I cycled the UK, I, I didn't know what direction I was going to take. I really didn't know what I was doing. It was actually when I finished that cycle and realized I don't just want to whiz through these beautiful countries, you know, to set out to attempt the the speed record. I actually remember a chat that I had when I was traveling in Thailand, Koh Tao. There was an Irish guy there who said that doing your dive master in Koh Tao is the cheapest place in the world to do it. And on that UK cycle, I remembered that. And so I thought, right, I'm going to become a scuba diving instructor. So already I, I didn't know this adventure career would be a thing. I didn't even know it was possible. Didn't know where I was heading. I was just, it, it happened very accidental and very organically. And it happened for two reasons. One of those reasons was to get off the beaten track and have unique experiences rather than sharing the same stories, experiences and photos as all of the rest of the travelers. And the other option, uh, the other reason was because of finance. I didn't want to keep spending money on tour buses and you know as you travel across Cambodia and Vietnam in a in a coach it's like an overnight bus and then they close the curtains and they watch a movie yet they're missing all this beautiful landscape because they're traveling at night so instead you know I wanted to get a, a bicycle but it had to be cheap cheaper than the bus fare <laughs> and we cycle it instead you know and so that was my so I didn't really have any inspirations I didn't really look to see who was doing adventures or even ancient explorers um, yeah. it was a case of I need to save some money and I want to get off the speed track <laughs> and then that's how it kind of and then from that point they start to grow bigger and better um, and then I guess Mongolia once I realized that it was a potential world first if I complete it then I kind of thought, well, maybe there's a way to monetize off the back of that. Yeah. Awesome. What was it like? Because I think I read, I heard you talk about the bikes 
Like you were cycling on the little cheap, nasty ten pounds. Oh, <laughs> ridiculous! <things. laughs> Hideous. <laughs> yeah. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, going back to your time in, in Asia. So, you know, scuba scuba instructor without no previous scuba experience, and then I think you picked up some uh, Muay Thai fighting skills, and I seen that you're actually you actually went into the ring. How how did that come about? Yeah, that was great. You know, I was doing a lot of boxing in Wales. Yeah. And then when I went over to Thailand, you know, age 19, I remember seeing a big Muay Thai stadium fight in Bangkok. And I remember thinking, fucking hell, that is brutal. That is different. And it kind of made me and my boxing skills feel a little bit inadequate, you know, the way that they are the martial art of eight limbs. They were using elbows, knees, they were kicking, they were grappling, they were throwing each other down. I was just like, that is rough. Didn't think of anything then. Didn't think I'd be doing it then at that point. If anything, I was like, fucking hell, you know, I'll stick to boxing. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I brutal. But, I've been to a few fights uh, in Thailand and it's brutal. I mean, I've seen a, a big Scandinavian boy. I mean, he must have been about six foot four and he got his shin snapped. After about ten seconds from a guy, it was half his height, and that was oh, you even think about that now, it was horrendous. Man, yeah, yeah tell yeah. you what, and it, it's surprising, isn't it? Because you do you, you see the Thai guys, and they're not a big build at all, and they're slender. They're very sort okay. of athletic looking, but I tell you what, they're just tough. It's almost like bone strength that they have, yeah. you know, and great technique. Um, yeah, and I've seen time and time again, you know, the bigger guy stepping in the ring, everyone's betting money on him. Apart from the ties, they know, and uh, that's it. The, the bigger guy loses almost every time to the ties. It's uh, it's insane. And so when I was living in Koh Tao as a as a scuba diving instructor, I then wanted to get into Muay Thai, and so I started to train. I started to take it serious. Um, you know, I was training a good five, six times a week. You know, on the end of my bed at night, I remember beating my my shins with a book um, to you know, to help kill the nerve endings because it really hurts when you block their kick or when you kick them. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, and, and then I had a few club fights and I had a stadium fight as well, which is funny because the club fights were more brutal. They were more fun for me than the stadium <laughs> fight. The stadium fight, you know, I managed to, to knock him out in 12 seconds of the first wow. round. And that was the time that I had all of the crowd there, you know, an audience. So I wanted it to go a little bit longer because they yeah. paid money to see. <laughs> to sing 12 yeah. seconds you know but um it was good I, I loved it and I and again I I was training in Muay Thai at the same time as I had Mongolia on my mind mm. and so for me it was one of those that was like well you know if you can't step in the ring to fight someone don't expect to be able to cross that Gobi Desert don't expect to be able to go up against a pack of wolves and they're stalking you you know it was kind of there was, it, I kept kept seeing it as levels to it and the Muay Thai training and fighting was kind of like a stepping stone to the next big thing, which was like survival, which was wilderness, which was mother nature, yeah. you know, far more brutal. And so I kind of did see that as uh, me preparing also for the, the Mongolia expedition. Yeah. So, that, that, I mean, the physical side of it, I mean, that, that's dedication in its own. So from a kind of mental side or maybe like a wilderness survival perspective, you spent time with the Burmese hill tribes as well, didn't you? What Was that all yeah. part of your preparation? Yeah, so effectively, so how it happened, um, you know, when I was in college, I raised funds by, I quit my job in the fish and chip shop. I then was working as a lifeguard 
and a waiter, saving as much money as I could. And then when I went off to travel, I lasted about two weeks before I started to get annoyed with being on the beaten track. And then the first away from home adventure, the catalyst, I would say, was that Vietnam cycle. You know, me and my friends sort of um, off on on the beaten track, sharing the same photo stories, experiences. And we just wanted something different. We wanted to save money and we wanted our own unique adventure. So we found $10 bikes. We had no pump, no puncture repair kit, string on the side of the road that we used to strap our rucksack onto the back. You know, we were chased by dogs, hit by mopeds dodged by lorries but we cycled two and a half weeks it was over 1100 miles the bikes broke 17 times in total it was the entire length of vietnam and cambodia and on completion of that i remember thinking you know fuck that was fun that was brutal (laughs) you know the last the last day we went over 39 hours cycling and over 45 hours with no sleep whatsoever so we were turned down by seven different sort of hostels and guest houses because we looked horrendous so they were saying no you're not staying here and we were like so sleep deprived we were suffering a lot and and i remember saying to my friend you know how cool would it be to at the end of my days have a world map and have lines across different parts of the world where i've cycled or hiked or survived or whatnot and from that point we we left vietnam we went to thailand and literally a week later we came across on the border of Myanmar, a place called Pai. We came across a local, you know, and he had this sort of bandana. He had this machete and we just got talking to him. And he said, you know, do you fancy an adventure in the jungle whereby I'll take you, we'll hike into Myanmar illegally with no permit because there's no border control. And we will learn how to, well, I will teach you how to survive in the jungle with the Burmese Hill Tribe. And that was just something I couldn't say no to. And I know a lot of people probably would have, you know, because if you see a guy (laughs) at the edge of the jungle with a machete offering an adventure to you, (laughs) you know, it's... uh... I mean, that's a tough part of the world. It's a tough part of the world. I mean, there's quite a lot of conflict and, uh, you know, uh, tribal kind of conflict in that region. Yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. So, so did that, was that a catalyst for Mongolia? It wasn't, no. I think all of these, it was the Vietnam cycle, it was the Burmese Hill Tribe, it was my time cycling across south of Australia and hitchhiking across the north Australia. Um, It was the the UK cycle that then prompted me to become a scuba diving instructor and Muay Thai fighter. And when I was actually training and teaching in Thailand, it was two years, and I remember thinking I really missed my time with the Burmese Hill Tribe or my time cycling Vietnam. I was only 22. I'd still had a lot to learn and a lot to do and a lot further to push myself. And I was kind of like, I want to do another adventure. I had this this wanderlust, if you like. This I had the travel bug. I was kind of like, right, I want to sack off my life as a scuba diver. I'm not earning much money. I, this isn't long-term anyway. It never was. It was a stepping stone to top up the funds. But now I want to do I, I want to do something. But I don't want to do something on tarmac. You mm-hmm. know, if, there's, if I'm cycling or if I'm running, it means there's a road. And if there's a road, there's people. If there's people, there's food, there's water, there's hotels, there's protection, there's safety. And for me, I just, I wanted to really test myself. I wanted to, to be out there where I'm self-sufficient, 
surviving my way across in the elements, no people. And I started to think of the most extreme countries um, that no one really speaks of or talks about. And, you know, it was 2010, 2011. I was like, what are those places? And I was on the travel route, you know, I was teaching thousands of people by that time over the two years. And everyone had been to so many countries, but not one of them had mentioned that they have been to or plan on going to Mongolia. And from that point, I was just I like, just... yeah, Mongolia, <laughs> why isn't anyone going there? Oh, what yeah. is the problem with Mongolia? You know, I know it's extreme, right. home to the Altai Mountains, the Gobi mm-hmm. Desert, one of the world's most sparsely populated country, you know, brutal in terms of snow blizzards, sandstorms, wolves, the lot. But um, why Why isn't anyone anyone going there? And then from that point, I, I think I was hooked. I was yeah. like, it's wild, it's extreme, it's brutal. And, you know, I was thinking maybe walk 50 miles, maybe walk 100 miles, and then it kept growing bigger over time. You know, And then I was like, maybe walk north to south until eventually I was just like, right, let's walk west to east. And I asked my buddy if he would join me. I tried to find those people who would wanted to join me. I didn't know it was a world record at that time. And, you know, no one was interested in uh, in taking that risk. Yeah. And then I realised that it would be, you know, it would be a solo and unsupported journey, and uh, yeah, that then got me scared, but also yeah. enticed me, you know. Awesome. And and what was that end to end? Then was it fifteen hundred miles or something yes. like that? It was fifteen hundred miles. <laughs> it was anticipated to take a hundred days. Uh, I managed to get the job done in seventy eight days. Huh. Um, it was three weeks over the Altai Mountains, five weeks across the Gobi Desert, and a further three weeks across the Mongolian steppe, pulling a, ha- a homemade trailer behind me, which <laughs> weighed about 18 stone. Same weight as what? Tyson Fury. <laughs> wow. So how did, I mean, the logistics of that, yeah, how, how did, so, so how did you plan for that? And tell us about the trailer. How, how did you, how did you build that? And how did, with any regrets or things you wish you had done differently with the trailer? Or? Um, I wish I had more money, to be honest. <laughs> I would have, everything would have been – I would have had a good evacuation plan. I would have had valid insurance. I would have had a factory-built carbon fibre lightweight trailer built. Um, but because I didn't have any of that, you know, I sold my scuba diving kit. I'd done extensive research into in Mongolia and internationally. I then started to bring teams on board who jumped on board for free because they were interested by this. And then after we realized that um, no one had completed this, you know, we came to the conclusion that this would be a recorded world first. And that is a big deal because there's very few firsts left. You know, that's why a lot of people now are doing fastest or longest yeah. or greatest. And awesome. to, do, to be a first is 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 hard to find and so they started working for for free because they wanted to be a part of part of history and you know at that point i had to move back to the uk to take the training serious i found a guy that had attempted he claimed to be the first person to attempt a solo and unsupported hike across mongolia he was a good guy he gave me good words of advice and the dangers to look out for um, but when I moved back to the UK, I only had t- literally £200 in my account. And so I had to move back in with my parents. But that also meant that I couldn't afford gym membership. 
Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, I don't come from a finance background, so you, my mum and dad didn't pay for my gym membership either. And instead, I contacted my uncle, who was a lorry driver, and I said, you know, if you come across any any farms during your pickup and deliveries, can you, you know, and if you see a tractor tire, can you ask the farmer if you can bring it, um, you know, if you can take it? And he did, you know, within about a few weeks, he found a tractor tire. So he bought me over a tractor tire, a sledgehammer. I set up a, a, a I hammered in a pull-up bar into my parents' house uh, on the outside of the house, and that was it. That was my training ground in their in their little green back garden. I trained for a world record in the green back garden, and then there there was a family friend who is good at building, you know, everything, anything. And so I asked him if he can build me a trailer, and in his back garden for free, he built me a mild steel trailer. He said it's it's going to be very heavy but it's going to be very durable. So on an empty load with nothing in it, it was already 40 kilograms. Uh, and on a full load, it would be 120 kilograms. Um, and so, you know, it's heavy, but I knew it would be robust. And, you know, I took it to Scotland. I trekked the West Highland Way. And oh, the West excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was my training ground as well. Yeah, I loved it. Place. Yeah, excellent, yeah. excellent. It was great, but it broke the trailer. The trailer, <laughs> yeah, it was. It wasn't having any of it. It absolutely smashed my trailer to bits, and I, I had to call for my uncle to pick me up. I was like, "Look, the trailer's broke. Your, your electronics are getting wet. <laughs> um, you know, I need, I need you to get me out of here." And so, that was a good lesson because, you know, in, if if that happened in Scotland, Mongolia would have like wrecked it within hours. And so I now knew what I needed to go off. So we sent the trailer back to the family friend and he needed to make a lot of adjustments and fixes. And he did. And now it was, it was ready. You know, it was a strong trailer. I managed to get the green light just about, I flew over to Mongolia, but again, you know, the insurance was invalid. Uh, the evacuation plan was, was pretty rec reckless, almost non-existent. But I was at the start line, and I was uh, I was ready to take on this this mad mission. Awesome! Yeah. So I think you quite you believe a little bit in visualization from from, from what I've seen. Uh, as do I, and you know, just thinking about did you did that come later, or did you have any of that kind of planning leg by leg for Mongolia? Because you know your own words a little bit reckless, or did you just fucking go for it and then <laughs> figure that out? Or what, what? yeah, with this one. It was it was far better prepared than all of my previous adventures. You know, it was with this. I like to say it was good attention to detail. It was meticulous planning, and it was realizing what happened to the previous guy. Why did he fail three times? You know, he was a soldier. He was a desert explorer. Why did he evacuate or three different attempts? And I really started studying him and learning where he went wrong and what I've got to bring to the table. You know, and I did email him and I asked the dangers and he and he was a nice guy, you know, he got back, but he says, you've got to look out for the drunken nomadic drifters, the snowstorm, the sand blizzards, the stagnant water, the dry wells, the steep ravines, the grey wolves, and the list went on and on, you know, and this really scared me. So I had a lot of doubt. I had a lot of fear. Uh, but I, it was too late at this point. I had announced what I'm going to do. I'm a man of my word. And, you know, I do believe just because no one's found a way to do something doesn't mean it can't be done. So if I apply proper training, proper logistics, if I take it serious, 
and realize that this isn't a case of winning or losing, it's a case of living or dying, then, you know, maybe I'll take the necessary steps to help me survive and complete this journey. And so visualization was a huge part of that because even when I was training in my back garden in the, in the middle of winter, it didn't matter. I was outside flipping that tractor tire, beating it with a sledgehammer, preparing myself physically, but honestly, preparing, my more, uh, preparing myself more so mentally. I was thinking of gray wolves. I was thinking of the, the list of dangers he sent. I was thinking if I'm going to face the storms, expect them to be the biggest and the baddest not because I wanted to face any of these situations, but, you know, if I was visualizing and thinking worst case scenario, then when I'm out there and I was unfortunately bound to face them, it wouldn't hit me by surprise. It would hit me as something I anticipated. So, you know, head down, crack on. Uh, something um, you thought through and, and, you know, rehearsed in your head and stuff like that. Exactly, or yeah. And I really put myself there. You know, I almost tried to feel it. Whilst I was training, I would deprive myself of water. I wouldn't be drinking any water for those three hours. I would just be trying to replicate it as best as I possibly could. And of course you can't, but I think that's, that is what really helped me mentally is that it didn't, it didn't, nothing took me by surprise. Although when I faced it, it was a, a lot worse. And it was in a, I was in a lot more pain and, you know, it was a lot more life-threatening. But I think the preparation really helped in that back garden of overanalyzing and blowing everything at a propose, proportion, even having nightmares, you know? Yeah, wow. I mean, I mean, the journey in itself, you know, completing that is incredible. But some of the terrain that you had to go through, so the, the Altai Mountains, the Gobi Desert, which order did... Did you encounter that? Was it was it the mountains first or the Gobi Desert? How did that play out in terms of? And yeah, talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so it was the Altai Mountains first, and then it was the Gobi Desert, and then the Mongolian Steppe. And the Altai Mountains, I flew to the most western city called Olgi, and mm-hmm. that is already over three thousand meters. Um, and it was. It was still really cold. It was maybe minus ten, minus fifteen. You know, rugged sort of knife edge ridge mountains, very rocky mountains with the snow on top. Um, you know, and I remember just sort of leaving and the wind was blowing. My lips started to blister and chap within days. It was pretty brutal up there. Um, and again, I only came across people every every few days. There would be people because the route that I took was following tracks, really, goat tracks or horse or motorbike tracks, you know. Um, is is which, that weird that you got the the kind of the the badge of the lonely snow leopard? Is that was that where the wolves and yes. stuff like that were were stalking? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, I came across a a town which had signal, and my local Mongolian logistics manager called Jenya called me up, and he said that you're making a name for yourself here in the capital, which came as a surprise because I didn't put no marketing. There was no PR, there was no marketing, there was no no funds into this whatsoever. And, you know, I think they just got wind of this mad white man trekking across their country alone, which which they don't do. You know, thousands of years, the Mongolians have trekked all over, you know. But um, solo and unsupported is deemed as suicide to them. They just don't do it. They take yak, they take camels, or they do it as a, as a close-knit family community, you know. So 
when they heard that I was attempting to do it solo and as a poet, they were just like, this is ludicrous. So the news really picked up on it. And they started to, Jenya said that they start, they'd come up with a nickname for you. And I was like, oh, okay, what's that? And it was like the Lonely Snow Leopard. And at first I thought, you know, what well, that that's a pretty savage name, you know, the Lonely Snow Leopard. I like that. And he was like, yeah, because, well, you've not yet been eaten by the wolves. Um, and the snow leopard is the only other predator that the wolves have a healthy respect for and keep their distance. And so part of me was like, that's cool, you know, that that, that whole. But also part of me was kind of like, well, genuine, you know, I'm still in the Altai Mountains, you know. I've not escaped them yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it is a real threat, isn't it? I mean, they've been responsible for fatalities and stuff, haven't they? So it's, yeah. Yeah, especially in Mongolia. Mongolia is the grey wolves. You know, they're big. They're big. On my on my Yangtze journey in the west of China, they weren't as big. They weren't as much of a threat. But Mongolia, they really were. Um, and, you know, it's a risk for them to attack humans. It is. But you hear stories and you see photos and you see videos. And if the locals panic and worry for you, then you should definitely be worrying because they know their wolves more than you know the wolves, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so... It was one of those where I was kind of like, okay, maybe I should just be a little bit more vigilant. <laughs> yeah, that's why. I mean, it's mad. So, so you've gone through like the the cold, the, the the mountainous terrain, and then into the desert. I mean, and into the <laughs> desert. Yeah, yeah. So with this, it almost felt like two separate expeditions in one because I had to I had to prepare for the for the cold and for the snow blizzards, but then I also had to prepare for extreme heat and sandstorms. Uh, and I think that's why the trailer ultimately was so heavy. It wasn't just the food and the amounts of water that I had to carry. It was the protection and the clothing for both winter and summer expeditions effectively. And, and by the time I broke into the Gobi Desert, without realising, I was probably already slightly dehydrated because I just wasn't drinking in the Altai Mountains because I just didn't feel the need to drink water because it was minus 15, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. How did your supplies go? Did you have to kind of stop? Were, were there any like homestays or villages along the ways that you had to like stock up on or did you just plan it all in advance? Yeah, we had the maps that we used. Me and my logistics manager, we had confirmed and unconfirmed water sources. Right. And this came in the form of wells, uh, especially in the desert. Wells, communities, or obviously towns, but we would be coming oh. across the towns, the route that I was taking, because I started to drop south of Mongolia and into oh. the Gobi Desert. Um, and so if there were any towns that I came across, I could top up the water. Same with communities. And when I say communities, that's kind of like locals living in their white felt tents, <laughs> which are known as like gurs or yurts. Um, and there would only be maybe four or five yurts, but this was perfect because they've got they they know where the wells are because they use you know they have the water there, and so as I was making my way through, if I came across an uncomfort well, when I came across across a confirmed water source, I would need to top up a large amount of water in order for me to be able to overcome a potential unconfirmed water source. Meaning, if there wasn't any water in that unconfirmed water source. Mm -hmm. I would need the water from the last well to last me to the next confirmed water source. But that was a lot easier said than done because it was 40 plus degrees Celsius. There was no natural shelter or shade. There was no breeze. 
<laughs> you know, the only sort of shade that I could get was underneath my trailer. And now it was a mix of gravel and soft sand, which meant the trailer and its thin wheels were sinking into the soft sand, Didn't which it? meant it felt like 500 kilograms. Honestly, it felt like pulling a concrete block through hell is how I describe it. It was um, agonizing. And at that point, I'd already overcame the, the mountain. So I was a lot skinnier and I was a lot weaker. <laughs> And I just remember coming across an unconfirmed, an unconfirmed water source. You know, it was, but at this point, I had four days to the next confirmed water source. And I remember I had gone through much more water than I anticipated. And now I had that last remaining water, which was hot water, the last remaining dribbles to provide four days worth to the next water source. And so I really had to ration that as best as I could. But at this point, it wasn't like I had come across this dry water source and then I started slipping into um, dehydration and heat stroke. It it had already been a number of weeks that I had been rationing to make sure I could make it across the five-week Gobi Desert stint. And so that, it it really hit me. Um, And I was already at that point gagging for water. And so heat stroke caught up. I started to <clears throat> suffer with uh, severe dehydration. Uh, I was delirious. I was hallucinating, and I could almost feel my organs drying. And I remember <laughs> resting underneath my trailer for an hour at least at a time, you know, and thinking if I keep resting under this trailer, it's not going to take me four days to get to that next water source, <clears throat> which will be in the form of a, a community where I can rest and shelter and recuperate for the next and um, and I didn't, at that point, I honestly didn't believe I could survive more than four okay. days. And at this point, I had text-only satellite phone, and I had missed the point of backup. So if I text my logistics manager, it would take him at least three to four days to get to me, and another couple of days to get me out of that heat. And wow. I, again, I didn't believe I could survive six days, and I realized okay. if I keep staying under this trailer, and I don't keep getting up and pushing on, I'm going to die out here in the Gobi Desert. Um, Which was hard, you know, and I was was facing a lot mentally as well as physically at that point. Uh, You know, I faced that process of overanalyzing, overthinking. I was thinking about friends and and family and, you know, just that shock of capture and realization that this, you know, this might be it. And that also came with a big scare, with a big shock, whereby I had to focus on one option, and that option was survive. I had to walk my way out of there and to the next water source. And by doing that, I had to, as as we spoke of uh, earlier, you know, about the whole visualization, I couldn't visualize four days because I was in so much agony, excruciating pain. But I could visualize 100 meters. You know, I could see 100 meters in front. So I I broke down my goals into a method whereby if I can rest no more than five minutes under the trailer and then push on 100 meters, and if I keep doing that, effectively four days will pass. And I would have made it. And, you know, as as difficult as it it was, I, I did manage to just about make it to that community you know, I collapsed, my urine was black, and it, it yeah. took me about eight days to recover, and I was in a bad, bad way. 
Um, yes, your kidneys and everything, everything else. It just sounds like you know you were right on the, on the brink. I think to, to push through that is, is probably I mean, that, I mean, that's an adventure in its own right. I, I mean, you, you, you're literally on the brink of death. There, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it put a lot of fear back into me as well because I wasn't out of the Gobi Desert yet. I had just reached the community, which had water, you know. So I was a bit intimidated by pushing on again because I know how fast the sun can take you. And without the right water, your body really does deteriorate. And even in these locations, you're still rolling the dice a little bit with the water sources, parasites, and and, and everything else that, that yeah. goes goes along with it. So, how, yeah. how did you when you got to the the water source, and did, did you meet any of the kind of nomadic tribes or, or or the people in that area? Did did they help? Yeah, but, they did, and they were amazing. You know, they were really hospitable, um, and I think they saw me approaching their community from. You know, far away. It's one of those yeah. whereby if I woke up one morning, it's such vast land that if I can see a goo in the far distance, just like a white felt tent yeah. over in the horizon, it will take it, it will take me at least a day, maybe two days to get there. Yeah. Um, and at, at this point, at, at my worst point, I could see a, a few goos, and I knew that it's going to take me about eight hours to get there. I could see them, yeah. but it's still going to take me, you know, a day's hike, and I was still doing that. 100 yeah. meters resting for five minutes um but they probably didn't see me you know and I, by the time i started to rock up upon their community you know that's when they at first they were confused and they were scared they were like whoa who's well, this but then i think it took them not even minutes to realize the pain that i was in and then they probably put two and two together and realized that i've just walked from yeah. And they must have been like, like, <laughs> it's like an alien just landing out of nowhere. I was like, what's this yeah. guy trapped yeah, in this trailer through the desert? Yeah. <laughs> and the way that I was uh-huh. probably walking as well, and I had this big sun hat, yeah. I was really <laughs> hunched over, head down, you know, walking poles in my hand, and I was taking a step maybe yeah. every every couple of seconds that they probably thought, fuck, oh, I can know? just imagine, like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, they were great, you know, they really sort of let me rest there and, yeah, and I, I couldn't budge then for eight days is when I felt, when I felt 99% again, Yeah, you know, close to 100% and confident enough to push on. I had my yeah. strength back um, and then I decided, yeah, to keep going. Yeah. So how long from then till you finished that, that mission then? Was that close to the end or did you still have a bit to go? Um, I think from that point, it was maybe about four weeks, yeah. but it would it was one of those whereby it was only maybe another week of the Gobi Desert and mm-hmm. then three weeks of the Mongolian steppe, which is, you know, it's more Greenland, more grassland, you've got more wildlife there, you've got more water yeah. and so uh, and more, more communities, more people. And oh, so it yeah. was, I feel I did it the right way round. You know, yeah. Altai Mountains first, Gobi Desert, and then the Mongolian Steppe. Ah. Um, yeah. Whereas I think after the Gobi Desert, to try to haul that trailer up over the mountains, as I was doing the first three weeks, if that was the last three weeks, that would have been, you know, a struggle, I think, because I was a lot skinnier, a lot weaker, and yeah, maybe I just wouldn't have had it in me. Can I ask a favour? If you're enjoying the show, can you give us a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel on YouTube? 
And if you happen to be listening to the audio-only version, can you give us a follow along there too? It'll really help grow the channel. We've got some fantastic guests coming up with some truly inspirational stories. Now, let's get back to this episode. Thank you. So you've closed out Mission Mongolia. Mission Mongolia. I feel dehydrated <laughs> just talking about that girl we did with <laughs> I know. I was in to take a drink myself, actually. <laughs> right. Yeah, oh. I took a gulp then. I was like, damn, that feels good. <laughs> and, I, and I've been to the desert. I mean, I've done a bit of a trek in the Sahara, and it was... Oh, only, nice. It was only a couple of days, but the thought... I mean, I've seen your pictures where you're lying under the trailer, and the thought of trekking any longer than what I'd done previously just gives me that absolute fear. So, yeah, man. It's something yeah, I can feel my lips going dry. <laughs> I, What's that? I can feel my lips going dry just thinking yeah, right. about it. <laughs> right. Have you ever been to Mongolia before? I have not, no. But uh, yeah, I mean, it does, it does, it does interest me. But I'm family man now, so I, yeah, yeah, I have uh, yeah, I have a young family, so trying to get away from it. <laughs> anyway, let's yeah. Over. If you ever, if you ever get the chance to go to Mongolia one day. You'll yeah. love it. It's, it's yeah. kind of like one of those that, if you want to know what the world looked like thousands of years ago, I say it's the wilderness of Mongolia. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So, what then gave you the inspiration to do Madagascar after that? I know, right? You'd think that's it now. Okay, <laughs> That'll be enough. Yeah. I mean, and obviously, the, the distances increased. Uh, on Madagascar, I think was it sixteen hundred miles. And it was, it? yeah, yeah. So weirdly enough, it was only a hundred miles longer, but it took almost double the duration. It took yeah. one hundred and fifty-five days as opposed to seventy-eight days in Mongolia. So um, Madagascar was brutal. It was again. It was one of those where it was a different beast. I always kind of say Mongolia was the toughest mentally because it was my yeah. the first one, and I was alone. And I had to be alone for it to be a record, otherwise it wouldn't have been. Uh, whereas Mongolia, uh, Madagascar, sorry, it was just about completing that journey. It didn't matter who joined me. The first was walking the entire length of Madagascar, you know, via its sort of interior south to yeah. north. And I also decided to summit the eight highest mountains along the way too. And, wow. You know, I think part of it was because in Mongolia, I went over eight days without seeing a single human, which was amazing. But also, you know, the Mongolians were great. And I thought in, on my next journey, I would like to come across and encounter more locals, get to know them, their way of life, their traditions, their yeah. culture. And, you know, I've always been one of those where I don't have a military background in terms of survival. All of the survival that I've learned or picked up on has been from the locals who I believe know it best because they do it day to day. To, to survive um and so i kind of madagascar came to mind because i knew i'd be coming across more locals but i also knew it's one of the world's most unique countries yeah um, with over 80 percent of plant life and wildlife endemic to madagascar and so and it would offer you know a mix of terrain and diversity as well it would be desert it would be jungle it would be mountains mm-hmm. and so um yeah i very quickly came to the realization that Madagascar would be my next adventure. Um, and it was, yeah, it was one of those where I, I didn't know it was a world record at first. 
Uh-huh. It was only when I was introduced to a logistics manager who is French. He is based in Madagascar, has been there all his life. And he leads even De- David Attenborough film crew across Madagascar. He is pretty much the Madagascar man. He is the, yeah. the logistics of Madagascar. Um, and I spoke to him and I'd said what I'm doing. And he says, well, why don't you walk us in Thailand from south to north virus interior? He wow. said, there's this, there's, there's this mountain range that runs the full course of the island and it lies central east. It was like there's been someone who has walked its length by the coast um, but with the coast, you've got, you know, you've got resorts, you've got people, you've got food, you've got water, you've got less extreme environments. He said, however, the interior, if you were to follow the ridge all the way across, it'd be wild. You'd be coming across communities that are suffering with the plague, the communities that have never seen a white person before. You'd have to hunt, you'd have to gather, and it's home to eight highest mountain peaks along the way. And as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I have to do that. Yeah, that is crazy. That is, oh, yeah. I mean, it's such a it's such a biodiverse uh, uh, country, isn't it? I mean, yeah. what was, I think, you, did you team up with, like, what is it, the Lima Network Conservation Programme? That's right, was that, yeah. Yeah, were they part of your logistics planning or were they sponsoring? What was What was that about? I just wanted to, with all of these adventures that I've done, even running it back to when I was 20, uh, you know, when I did that UK cycle, I raised funds for NSPCC. So with Mongolia, I raised funds for the Red Cross um, and raised awareness for climate change and the effects that it has on the nomadic way of living. Um, And then with Madagascar, I also wanted to give back where I could. So I teamed up with the Lima Network Conservation. Um, you know, and I vowed to meet up with as many organizations as I could along the way. They have 60 organizations on the ground helping to protect and preserve all of the unique biodiversity in Madagascar. And so, yeah, I partnered with them. I partnered with the tourism minister as well. Um, and on completion of that journey, I think we reached over 350 million people. You know, they dragged me back to the island and that's when they wanted to make me ambassador for the island uh, of oh, Madagascar. Yeah, which was great. So I always try to look at the bigger picture rather than have it be one man and his adventure. You know, I want to um, give back where I can, raise funds where I can, raise awareness where I can, um, and just share the share the journey and, and, oh, yeah. and share whether that's unique stories about the island and the people um or my encounters or photos videos of the beauty and the the, the diversity of it so um yeah that's kind of what i've always tried to do uh, and that's i mean that this couple of sentences alone is part of the reason why i reached out it's part of what i'm trying to do with this podcast is you know bringing to life some of these stories but also you know in the pay it forward segments is just really raising awareness for some you know Charities, yeah. good causes, and sometimes things that people are just not aware of. You know, I mean, an example: I had a, a an interview with a, a hiking uh, guide, a chap called Ian Backer. He's trying to blaze a trail of a, well, a kind of through hike in the Pamir yeah. region. It's what a thousand kilometres, and he's re- and, and in that example, he raised awareness for some of the you know, female hiking guides in that area. So it's, oh, it's, it's nice. that's the, the, the purpose of doing this show, and we'll come on to that at, at the end, but, I mean, being announced yeah, as a UK ambassador, 
uh, for Madagascar and tourism as well. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? You know, you yeah. get to fun, you know, risk your life, but also they <laughs> raise awareness. It's, uh, it's yeah, incredible. exactly. That's what it's about, isn't it? For sure. Yeah. But so, I mean, if I think about what you were saying in Mongolia, you know, you nearly died of dehydration, but then you contracted malaria in Madagascar. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, oh, Madagascar was one of those where out of the 155 days, there just wasn't a day where I was just like, oh, that was a nice day. That was a good hike. <laughs> it was just, you know, to name a few, it was held up at gunpoint by the military. It was avoiding the, the bandits. It was cro- crossing crocodile-infested rivers. Um, it was being munched on by leeches, bitten by spiders, machete in hand, sort of hacking through the jungle hunting gathering it was it was intense <clears throat> escaping bushfires and then oh. of course contracting the deadliest strain of malaria um oh. and i've got a you know i've got a great story talking about giving back with that malaria but you know regarding that i was taking anti-malarial pills and i was only one month into a five-month expedition but um what during this we we rocked up uh, to a community that was actually suffering from the bubonic plague, such oh, an really? ancient wow. disease. Yeah, you know, oh. something I was warned about by my logistics yeah. manager. Didn't necessarily expect to, to come across one, um, but they pretty much said, look, you can stay here. We'll, we'll, we'll give you food and water, but stay in your tent because they've, re- they've recently lost a few relatives due to the plague, you know, which made me feel awful. I kind of wanted to pack up and, and leave, oh. leave them in peace but they were really warm and welcoming and they brought food to our tent i say our it was me joe and me which is the name of my guide so yeah. it got confusing it was me me and joe <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and what they had was it was eel and rice but the eel it smelled pretty funky but we were we were all so hungry you know big yeah. days high. so we ate this eel and rice and you know, the next morning we escaped our tent, packed them down, waved goodbye to the villagers and, and pushed on. And we started suffering then with severe diarrhea. And we think that the pills, you know, they went in one way and they went yeah, out the yeah. other. And I didn't have my full dose protecting me. And it only protects you about 80% anyway, but that's enough right, to, yeah. to keep malaria off. And over time, over the next few days, that's where I think malaria got a hold of me. And it was falsely pouring the deadliest there's four different strains you've got the deadliest but it's the deadliest that usually kills you within 24 hours but it's the one that if you catch in time you can eradicate it completely out of your system however the three other strains they aren't as deadly but they can remain dormant in your system and poke their ugly every few years uh but i didn't know i had i had this at first you know i was really suffering it felt like similar signs and symptoms to that that i faced in the gobi desert um, and I was walking for five days with this falsiparum malarial strain. And I managed to make a community that had overland transport. I stayed the night there. And then it was only that next morning that I realized that, whoa, you know, I, I am in a wow. dire situation. There was a 45 minute mental battle that I had just to sit up in bed and, and grab a glass of water it seemed like a big struggle. And I told me, I said, I need to get evacuated now to a nearby city. And I had overland transport. I made it to the city. 
the doctors came. I just collapsed on the bed. I remember seeing like three heads spinning above me. I wasn't, I wasn't all there at this point. Um, she took my blood and she came back minutes later and said, you've got falsy pora. And I said, you know, what's that? And it was all in broken English because she mainly speaks French. And she said, it's the, it's the deadliest strain of malaria. And that if I had made it to the community only a few hours later, I could have potentially slipped into a coma because my body temperature was, you know, one degree from slipping into a coma. Um, That's that's something. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And of course, I wasn't really educated on malaria and I didn't know the strains and, you know, I didn't know what that meant for me, for my future. Uh, You know, my parents were really worried. Of course, my family, friends were saying, get back home. Uh, But I also felt I was in safe hands, you know. Unfortunately, they deal with malaria cases every single day. Uh, They know what they're doing. And I was one of those fortunate ones that had the very little funds that it takes. It's what, same price as a cup of coffee uh, for the the pills. And, uh, you know, they cleared it out of my system fully. Eight days later, I lost about 10 kilograms, I think it was, but... I uh, I felt good enough to push on, and I was only one month into my five month journey, and I was able to to crack on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got some mental fortitude. I think a lot of people would have packed up after that. Did you have any thoughts of packing up and just calling it quits? Or you know, I I didn't, but I remember being on the medication, and that hit me sideways. You know, I remember yeah. I changed for a few days. I was just I hated everything. Wow. I hated myself. I hated the country. I hated the people. It, it was weird. It's almost like the, the, the pills did something to my yeah. mindset, and I became really angry and really negative. Um, it didn't last long. It only lasted a few days. But then I, you know, I started to recover. I started to drop off the pills, and I started to regain my positivity. I started to feel a little bit more like me. I started to do push-ups and, and sit-ups in the room trying to trying to put on weight i was ordering all foods and and then it got to a point where i started to get bored in the hotel room and i said to my doctor you know can i leave and she was like no you've not finished your course and i was like well i'll i'll leave but i'll take my course whilst i'm trekking madagascar and she sort of <laughs> laughed and said what and i'm like this this being in this hotel is driving me insane uh, i want to i want to go so i left she gave me the all the all clear and i ended up I was trekking the second highest mountain in Madagascar while still popping my anti-malarial, <laughs> still recovering from malaria. But looking back, I wouldn't do now. Uh, You're but... absolute glutton for punishment. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, awesome. Uh... So, so, I mean, like most of your expeditions, you've had some great low points and uh, and overcome all of them. What was the highlight, really, of Mad? Before we move on to Mission Yangtze, what was your highlight yeah. of Madagascar? Oh, uh, you know what? I think the highlight of Madagascar was just being there and experiencing all of its unique biodiversity. Oh. You know, I think every day I walked past something that I will not see off of this island. Um, the locals, you know, we had sticky situations down south, but all in all, that was because they were in a very desperate state, and I get that yeah. now. You know, and up north they were very friendly, and there was a very nice culture, very upbeat, positive, dancing to their music. I'll never forget, yeah. even around the fire, some some you know some experiences that I'll never forget. Um, 
And I guess my guides as well, you know, I think that's a huge highlight is we went through thick and thin with each other. We went through such difficult times, especially in the jungle up north as we're sort of hacking through, having to hunt, gather, bitten by spiders, eaten alive by leeches. Yet eventually we built a bond and they are like my Malagasy brothers, you know. Uh, I loved it so much. I ended up going back there a year later and leading an expedition for Charity Challenge, raising awareness and funds for various different charities while summiting the second highest mountain on the island. You know, it was, uh, yeah, I I miss it, actually. I woke up the other morning actually missing Madagascar and wanted to go back. Yeah, that's good. I'd I'd like to get back there again, for sure. Yeah. What was it, wildlife encounters like there? Did you see, I'm assuming you would have seen all manner of things. Oh, man, <laughs> so many. I saw, um, what are they called? I forgot, giant comet moth. Yeah, giant comet moths, which are, they're about this big. Yeah. You know, Christ. bigger than a small board, uh, a small bird, sorry. And, you know, they would fly by and you'd actually feel the, the wind off its <sighs> wings as it would fly by. And I remember a few mornings in the jungles up north, waking up in the morning, uh, setting up the fire, uh, or, or should I say the fire is still kind of going, smoke still coming off the fire from the previous night, and waking up to lemurs above, also using the smoke of the fire, because they are also getting annoyed by the insects, and the smoke of the oh, fire clears no. off the insects. And they're there chirping and howling above us, wild lemurs right there and then you know and so that was a huge encounter one of my, one of my greatest highlights actually is just waking up here and them looking up Maybe. and thinking you know there's wow. wild lemur right above us oh, that's incredible that's incredible yeah yeah so you've got mongolia out of the way madagascar what on earth made you think about doing mission yangtze i mean like to put this into context that like four four thousand miles Right. 4,000 miles. That's, that. I mean, looking, I mean, I was looking at that in the map, and to put that into context, that's like the equivalent of walking from New York to Los Angeles and then nipping down to the heart of Mexico. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's insane. That's like long-haul flights. Yeah, it is. I think it's like going from, it's like walking from Istanbul, Turkey, um, to London. Actually, even further, I think it's more like East oh. Turkey to London. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that stands out amongst everything that, you, that you've done. So, so why? <laughs> yeah. So the Yangtze, a few reasons, actually. The Yangtze was, you know, when I left at age 19, I spent two weeks in China with my friend Matt. And we left. We looked at the map of China and realized we can't really say we've traveled China. We skirted along the East Coast. It was at Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and that's it. Whereas China is a huge place. And so I always knew I wanted to go back there. I feel people think of China, they think of the big cities. And there's obviously, you know, there's a lot of big cities, but there's a lot more wilderness than there are cities, you know? So I always wanted to venture. I knew that it would be super diverse. I knew that it would also be a a bit tricky to plan, you know, with the very controversial, very difficult logistically. But if I can, you know, if I can get in there with China where they support me, you know, maybe there's a way I can, you know, have a career over there. But also I felt that after Mongolia, it was always a struggle for me to progress uh, as a career you know i can talk about that side now i never really spoke about yeah. this but you yeah. know finance i was struggling 
after Mongolia, I was still living with my parents. Madagascar, I thought this is the one where I can break TV. Um, and I didn't. So after Madagascar, I was still living with my parents. I was still struggling. There was still no TV. Um, there was still no book until about a year after Madagascar. And I eventually got a book out, but it was a small publisher. And, you know, I had to market it myself to my <laughs> followers on Instagram, which I had 2000 followers at that point. So I wasn't making any money for my book either. So I was struggling. I was struggling a lot. So I thought, you know what, well, this is what I'm great at. I, I certainly don't want to go back to lifeguarding or working in a fish and chip shop or going back to scuba diving because that got repetitive and I was working oh. for pennies. So I was like, this, it feels like this is only my only option. It feels like it's something I'm great at. It's two world firsts. You know, uh, it, it's one of those where it's like I'm already too far to turn back, but it's also wow. too hard to keep going, you know? It was a tricky one, but I thought, I think this next one, it has to be groundbreaking. It has to change everything, um, and it, it needs to be fucking big. And I was I was going back to when I was 19 in China. I was thinking of the Great Wall of China. I was thinking of Greenland. I was thinking of the Congo River. And then I, also the Yangtze River came to mind. So I whittled it down to two, and that was the Congo River and the Yangtze River. Both brutes, you know, um, in terms of difficulty, maybe the, the Congo is definitely tougher physically because it's all, almost suicidal. You know, very, you know, whoever does that, that would be a, a, oh, yeah, yeah. A, an all-time great. But the Yangtze, tougher logistically because I'd be going through Tibet. You know, this would be super sensitive. And the Yangtze was bigger too. You know, the Amazon has been hiked. The Nile was almost hiked. And the Yangtze is the, the, the biggest uh, river to run through a single country, third biggest in the, in the world, only like one, 200 miles between all three mighty rivers. And it hasn't been hiked yet. And so I was kind of like, okay, 6,500 kilometers. It would take me about a year to complete. And, you know, from there, I was just like, right, the Yangtze makes more business sense than the Congo. And so part of it was a financial decision as well. Um, And it took two years to plan. It was very difficult to plan. Um, You know, and I wasn't even making the right noises at the beginning. You know, we were in talks with logistics. We were in talks with production. I didn't have my visas. I didn't have the permits that I needed to access the source of the Yangtze because it was too sensitive. I took on a huge risk. I went. I threw a press conference in Canary Wharf in London and I announced something that I didn't, I couldn't do. But I attached brands' names and logistics and production teams' names to the press release that we launched to the BBC. And that was my way of hurrying the process up. Like the logistics team and the sponsors and the production team they kept putting it off. They were like, yeah, yeah, maybe next year, maybe next year. How can I get them to work? How can I get them to realize that this is happening? And so I, I, you know, it was a hell of a risk. My parents didn't want me doing it. Uh, My friends were saying this is a bit reckless and it will be bad for your name if it doesn't go ahead. Uh, But I I went for it. I I launched a press conference, (laughs) sent in that press release, (laughs) attached all of the names and I'm like, the world is now watching your name is attached to that list. You've now got to work and it paid off. 
people started to you know grind we all started to get excited by it permits started to come my way i i got access to um a visa um i got government support i had the authorities promising to cover my back um they made me doctorate in order to get uh access to the source of the Yangtze River. They made me ambassador for the Green Development Foundation in order to access that sensitive region. And all in all, there were over 14 or 16 stamped and signed governmental documents that were laminated that I had to carry the whole way. Uh, I managed to get sponsorship. Um, and two years later, I got the green light and we made our way out to China. That's, yeah. I mean, because there's quite because there's a lot of political uh, red mm. tape. I would imagine you would have to jump through, especially between Tibet and, and China and stuff. So, I mean, that sounded like a you know a mission in its own right. It was. Yeah. It was a. It was a hell of a ball ache to uh, yeah. to get this off the ground, and I knew it would be. I knew it would be possibly the hardest river in the world to plan for. Um. But I also thought if I can pull this off, that's, yeah, yeah. You know, that's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you started in you started in Tibet. Is it is that where the source of it is in, in Tibet and the plains of Tibet? The, the source is on the on the border, so okay. that's okay. where it gets sensitive. It is, it's in Qinghai, but there's mm-hmm. arguments to suggest that it's in Tibet. But yeah, the documents yeah. I had, and I had the Qinghai government give me access yeah. to the source, but then I also had the police pulling me in. And interrogating yeah. me, saying that you're in Tibet, and I had to tell yeah. them, you know, I'm not. I'm in Qinghai. So they were back and forth, yeah. and I think I was pulled in by the authorities five different occasions, and they threatened to deport me. It got messy, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it was because of the the documents that I had. It was again. So this expedition was uber planned out to yeah. a high level. This one was when it felt like I became that professional. Yeah. and you know and where i really t- tied in it's 50 percent adventure 50 percent business i yeah. understood the game i understood the market um and i understood what needed to be done to keep myself there in china following that river until the job gets completed you know yeah and it's been covered by national geographic hasn't it and, and yeah well yeah mm-hmm. we filmed for national geographic we still want to break it into the west and I think that my latest show following the Great Wall of China will enable and, and make room yeah. for my Yangtze show to break the West, which will be exciting. Um, so, yeah, we were filming for Nat Geo. We had Guinness World Records involved. We uh, we had WWF on board. It was, uh, yeah, it was a big trip. It was big yeah. exciting doing this. Yeah. Is that, is it, not, did Nat Geo have different, like, agreements then in different geographies in the world because it's a bit curious as to why it's available in Asia but not in the West yet. Yeah, you're right. They kind of had different markets that they look after. (coughs) So there's there's Nat Geo Global Mm -hmm. or like Nat Geo International and then there's Nat Geo Asia and Nat Geo International, they look after all regions effectively Uh apart from Asia, Africa and the Middle East. Whereas Uh Nat Geo Asia, they look after Asia, Africa, and Middle East. So uh, it was Nat Geo Asia that took it. Um, and so we just need it on Nat Geo International, or at least Nat Geo UK. This is the thing. Yeah. It gets like gets annoying to think that I've had more support in America and China uh-huh. than the UK, you know, because this, is, this yeah. is my whole country. I'd like my yeah. show to play here. 
Yeah, and I, I think I think you've touched on this before. It, it is probably a bit, little bit challenging here when you've got like so like Bear Grylls and Ed Stafford and all yeah. that. You know, it's like kind of kind of cornering the market to the, to a degree, haven't you? But yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And you know, with Ed, I'm totally different. You know, he's strictly like Rainiers, isn't he? He's survival. Yeah. Whereas my stuff isn't like that. And then with Bear Grylls, again, he's he's totally different. So it's really difficult to speak with these channels and almost get them to understand that we are totally different, totally different. Exactly, and, and I'm, I am the audience, you know, people like me, you know, and we want to see that, so we, we want that on the news. Yeah. So if anybody is listening and watching this at a point in time, get it on in the UK, sharp. Yeah, isn't know? it? It really yeah. is. It's uh, So, yeah, it can get frustrating, but I, I'm a big believer that consistency always wins, Yes, and I will, uh, I will, I will get there eventually. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm absolutely sure of it, and I'll be uh, rooting for you as well. Appreciate that, brother. Good. So, in terms of so, so give it. Without, I don't want to take too much of your time out on this, but so, what, what was the kind of highlights and lowlights? Are the lowlights first off of the the Yanksy, and then your highlights of it? The lowlights. <clears throat> um, I wouldn't say there there were difficulties. There were challenges. Mm-hmm. And there were times where, in fact, the first time I ever questioned what on earth I was doing was on the Yangtze, and it was at the beginning. But I almost yeah. look at that and think I needed that. I needed to be pushed there, yeah. you know, because I'm always chasing it. So I'm glad that I faced it. So, but effectively, the the challenges were losing five members of the team. Not they didn't lose their life. They were all like. Um, well evacuated but i think losing five members of the team before making it to day one so before we even found the source of the yangtze river there were five members evacuated and had abandoned the trip due to altitude sickness fear of wildlife um or just vulnerability or injury and then eight weeks in we had already lost over 10 of the 16 different members that would join me at different times, whether that's be for photos or um, film crew or guides. Uh, I think it was the minus 20 degrees Celsius, the snow blizzards, the being at over 5,100 meters uh, altitude, which is equivalent to Mount Everest base camp. It was the bears. So being there at the wrong season when bears were actively looking for food and calories before they go into torpor, which is their version of hibernation being followed by a pack of wolves for two days, uh, a day after that they had killed a local. Um, That was pretty scary. Um, And having to close the expedition down because people were joining, were just getting injured or just had a lot of fear, whereby I was like, this is getting too dangerous. And I just shut it down and continued alone until the six-month mark where I was able to open it back up again. So yeah. I'd say some of those were, you know, and the authorities pulling me in, some of the, those were, you know, really yeah. challenging at that time because I remember the police pulled me in five different occasions. Wow. There were snow blizzards. It was minus 20. There was the threat of bears, wolves, and it was like 10 days in. I remember thinking, I've still got over 340 days left. What am I doing? What am I doing? Yeah. I mean, was it the bears that were – because I, I, I think I've seen the, the weird bear attacks and stuff, and I have seen some of the, the – I think one of the videos that shows you them ripping right through a shelter when there's people inside and in, yeah. in, in their home and stuff. And I think you were getting warned, weren't you, by some of the locals that this was a, a real and proper threat? 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I kind of went out there with that healthy mentality of you leave the bears alone and the bears will leave you alone. And I took I took a whistle with me <laughs> and an air horn. <laughs> and, and the locals just gave me that reaction. You know, they would just laugh. They'd be like, that isn't going to do any. And then they would start sharing these stories of, you know, even a, a group of uh, bears that were rummaging through this man's hut on the other side of the stream that they lived on. And the guy came back to bears inside his hut and he revved his motorbike engine. He beeped his horn. The bears came right out, chased him off. And they said he never came back. He, he That scored him. He never came back to that hut again. Um, you know, and they were sending me photos of, you know, big ass grown men who were mauled to death bite marks, scratches, yeah. and, you know, I remember there was one horrific photo that was sent through to my WeChat, which is like WhatsApp, and I had to yeah. delete it. I couldn't yeah. have that energy on my phone. Yeah. Like, this is, it's a, it's a man's dead body who was mauled. And then they yeah. started sending me videos of bears who had just killed families in huts, like yeah. looking out the window, and it was on CCTV, the, the news channel, and it's just blood dripping down. Oh, Christ. You know, so that's when I was kind of like, okay, they're, they're serious, you know, and a whistle won't do much. Uh, they would kind of say, make yourself aware so that the bear doesn't see you by surprise and get scared yeah. and attacks you. So I do get that side of it. But at the same time, there would be stories of bears walking past Tibetan mastiffs, these big dogs that protect yeah. lives from wildlife, through their courtyard, scratching at their steel doors. Oh, and I, 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 I'm in a tent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's we we I, I actually I inter- have you ever watched the TV show Alone from the History Channel? You know, I've heard survival. of it. So I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. It's, you know, contestants they go out and they're in proper wilderness and they've got to survive. They can take ten items and they've got to survive as long as they can. And yeah. I'm speaking to the winner of that season eight, uh, Clay Hayes. Yeah. And they they were in British Columbia in, in Canada. So they had they were dropped in a place called uh, Chilco Lake, which was also dubbed as Grizzly Mountain. So it was right. infested by grizzly bears. And he was talking about some of his encounters. And it's like you just don't want to, you know, stumble upon these things because they're mm-hmm. ferocious and they'll just, you know, and they, they carry bear spray. And he was giving examples of like, but you need to be downwind because if you're upwind yeah. and you spray that, <laughs> then you're putting yeah. yourself out and then you're just... You're, exactly. You're, yeah, so I, Scary, I think... Man. Bears are, yeah. I think bears are the wildlife that are... Nah. Tigers, <laughs> lions, obviously brutal, but nah, I would I would choose one of them over a bear. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So... Mental. Uh, so all the, all the scary stuff to, to, to one side then, what... Uh, and how did you how did you think that compared you know the Yangtze to what you went through in Madagascar and Mongolia because and in fact is Mongolia a little bit like Tibet at the start is it similar terrain or yeah it is actually <laughs> yeah you're right especially the Altai Mountains yeah it's all kind of connected by the Himalayas there isn't it and so yeah. uh, it was very it was it's strange because almost in Qinghai West China where the source is it was almost I felt more vulnerable, even though I wasn't alone. You could just go vast distances and open land. And it was like that in Mongolia, but I don't know. It just felt different in West China. And I wasn't expecting that because Mongolia is wild. It is extreme. It's open. It's vast, you know? So, um, yeah, they were very similar. You're right. Yeah. Awesome. So, what? So, in terms of completing that, what was your most rewarding aspect of? 
getting to the end of the, the Yanksy and, and, and on reflection, what would you say um, to that? I think with that, it was so well executed and so well planned. And, you know, and I didn't suffer any diseases or dehydration or, you know, I really felt that that's the one that, although there were so many challenges, I really handled them. You know, up to a point where even my team in the UK and China were saying, abandon the expedition, try again next year, because everyone was just leaving left, right and centre, you know, and it was getting dangerous with the season, with the bears, with the um, with the temperature. And I remember being on the phone saying, no, you know, I'm experienced now. I'm, I'm comfortable with my decision making. I'm going to push on and I'm going to make it. And, you know, if I had listened to them and if I did turn back, I would have never have done Mission Yangtze because the following year, COVID-19 hit, which meant that there would have been no way of doing that journey, you know? So, and I also think the day I said, I said goodbye to my parents, my mum was there at the bigger expedition launch, which was in Shanghai. It was a big sort of luxury, expensive launch along the um, Pudong River in Shanghai. We had this cruise, we had delegates, everyone on board, and I gave a presentation you know, my logistics team were there as well. And they were talking about all the dangers and the West and the military base camps and how people just go missing. Well, wow. the government takes them and they just say, oh, oh yeah. you know, he died in the mountains trekking. And, you know, they were saying that in front of my mum. And my dad's part of the business. He gets all of this. We go through all of this together. And my mum gets it to a certain degree, but she doesn't need to be there hearing experienced locals. Wow, yeah saying all the ways that his son might go missing and that this is very dangerous. And she knows it's dangerous. And I remember she started to cry, you know, that last day that we were saying bye to each other, they were flying back home from Shanghai and I was going to be flying to the source uh, or to a city close to get closer to the source. And I, um, I remember whispering in her ear whilst I'm hugging, hugging her saying, I've had this before. You know, I said, they're, they're not pointing out any new dangers to me. I said, and people said exactly the same with Mongolia and Madagascar, hence why the book's called Mission Possible. I said, I've faced it all before and I overcome it time and time again. I said, one year from now, you'll be at the finish line. You'll be back here in this city where the Yangtze pours into the East China Sea. I said, I'll be hugging you again and I'll whisper in your ear, I told you I would make it. You know, and a whole year later, I did. I, I remember hugging her at the finish line. There were over a hundred members there. It was, you know, captured on camera, news channels. And I hugged her and I whispered in her ear, I told you I would make it. And, you know, that really stands out to me as a huge proud moment um, because mm. I put her through a lot of stress, a lot of worry. But I told her that I will execute on my plans, I, you know, through good training, preparation. I won't do this recklessly like maybe I have done some of the others. I will make it and I will prove to you that they were wrong. And I will get the job done. <laughs> a man of your word. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So how was it received by the locals in the country then after you had completed? Amazing, that? man. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Such immense support. I remember rocking up being there. A book signing because I had my book translated into yeah. into Mandarin, ah. and I remember I rocked up in this big plaza, sort of like ah. a big shopping mall, and I had a huge banner that was one, two, three, four. I think it was four stories high, um, and it was just a huge advertisement on me on the Yangtze, you know, wishing me luck, but also book signing on four uh, on floor number four and. You know, each city that I went to, the reason it took 352 days is because for me, it wasn't a race. 
you know, it was a first. And so I just yeah. had to get the job done. So that meant I could actually take time out in cities to, to do media obligations, book signings, um, you know, meet with journalists for their papers, magazines, for TV interviews, and, and also provide and give back to the schools as well, especially out west. I partnered up with Water to Go, filtration bottle. It kills like 99.9% of all bacteria and contaminants. And we were given free bottles out to all of these schools, thousands of bottles, and I would obviously present for free as well along the way. And, and you know, I really enjoyed taking that time out to um, connect with the locals, share stories, help and give back. You know, I worked with WWF as well and met up with different organizations that, you know, they're helping to bring back the porpoise finless dolphin in great numbers, and they're succeeding. You know, they're bringing that finless porpoise dolphin back um, yeah. each year in increasing numbers. And the Eben Fishery Department, which is there to ban uh, illegal fishing, and uh, it was just, yeah, so it was all sort of stuff like this I was doing along the way, which broke up the monotony of just, you know, surviving and getting the job done and, and walking and um, and the locals really took to it. Yeah, it's awesome to hear. I think it's you bring a real balance to, to all your adventure and the conservation and, and awareness. It's, it's really refreshing to hear. It's not mm. just all about you and about the, 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 the challenge. It's, it's more about yeah. the... The, the locals, the country, the, the, you know, the exactly. things that, are, that they are struggling with as well, you know, it's, it's, exactly. it's pretty something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And for me, that's, you know, that's what it's all about. That's how it begun. That's why I started traveling. That, and that's why I wanted to ultimately get off the beaten track, you know. I wanted to I, see the Vietnam local, the Vietnamese locals, and not be in the bus with the tourists. And, <laughs> you know, I'm able to, to give back. And, you know, even with Malaria No More, I became Malaria No More UK ambassador. And I was able to present my story um, in Parliament to the UK government. In and we were pleading for an extra twenty percent increase into the global fund. That, if successful as a joint effort, joint team, it would go on to save over eight million lives and cases in the next five years of malaria. And I was presenting with Annie Lennox from Eurythmics, uh, and as a joint team, we succeeded. You know, and oh. people say, would you, you know, would you ever take malaria again? And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever want to take that again. But if it meant taking it again so that I could be a voice to help give back and help protect and save as many lives as I believe we we did, I would take, I would take that fight with malaria again. Yeah. Serendipitous. Amazing. Honest, honestly. Brilliant. Yeah. So, you know, want to be a bit respectfully of your time with a bumpy start with the te technology. <laughs> I don't want to keep you all day, mate. So, you know, what's what's next? Have you got any other plans for big expeditions or, or that in the pipeline? Yeah. Or anything you can talk about if you can't, that's okay. Yeah, well we've just we've just launched um not launched, sorry. We what I believe I've completed maybe what's the biggest step of my adventuring career so far. So, you know, we've just come back from following 21,000 kilometers on the Great Wall of China. This was a huge deal for me. It was a multi-million dollar um, production, all in. It was 20 members of film crew, and I was hosting my very own six-time, one-hour TV show. And I think this one will be international, and I really yes. do think we will secure the UK. We're currently yes. in post-production. I will be doing the voiceovers for the first three episodes this week on Friday. Seven months in the making, you know, I've been back for seven months already. It's taken them a long time to get this because it's a 
it, it was a big project. Um, but yeah, you know, this year I came back from following China, uh, the Great Wall of China. And uh, I think from this, if I break TV, especially UK TV, uh-huh. I can then go in and present my over-adventuring ideas because I've got a lot. Some of them yeah. are world first. Some of them are just great TV concept ideas, you know. So so let's see where this Great Wall show lands. And uh, this should this should open the open the doors for me. Yeah, I hope it does, mate. I, I mean, I think you've <laughs> you've put the miles in literally. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm yeah, I'm buzzing. I, I can't wait to see uh, what's next, and th- I hope I hope that does break the UK because, like I say, I'm the audience. I'm the captive audience that wants to be watching this thing. There's enough room for everybody, whether that's you know all the, all the kind of A-listers or, or that, but some of the stuff that you've done and the awareness that you've raised for some of these projects and the just yeah, it's, it's incredible. So, so yeah, appreciate that, man. Thank you kindly. Yeah. So we're coming up on time. The cl- two closing traditions I've got on this show, Ash. Uh, one of which is call to adventure, and then a pay it forward segment. So call to adventure, a recommendation, a suggestion of some sort of activity or place or something to get involved with to to get people inspired. What have you got? Call to adventure. Um, you know, I would say that you can all have your own adventure. Um, I think people sort of overanalyze and overplan and always think that they need to be ab- abroad, but they don't realize it's on your doorstep. I'm breaking it back down to my beginnings. <clears throat> all of my adventures were were done, you know, on, on my doorstep. You can do hiking, you can do cycling, canoeing, kayaking, mountain trekking, you know, that it's all there. So, you know, get out there. It's good for your mindset. Um, and there are organizations out there as well. One that I did was Charity Challenge, where you can actually take a, tr- a trip abroad, um, tick off a huge bucket list, uh, list trek, you know, mountains, great war, but also whilst raising funds for for charity or just doing it as a personal goal to, to help with growth, help with mindset and just uh, enjoy the experience, you know. Excellent, awesome. We'll get that listed and added to the to the show notes as well. And then I and do then finally, want to. I've not actually said this before, but I do actually want to start leading trips myself. I think in between these big expeditions or these TV shows, there's room for me to plan two or three trips abroad. And so, you know, stay tuned. I've not announced anything yet, but I am thinking of partnering up and actually taking people back to Madagascar, taking people back to Mongolia, to West China whereby we trek a mountain or we follow the river or by we trek yep. part of the Gobi Desert. So uh, I would like to open up that and uh, allow people to, well, to join, you know. Keep keep me posted because the Mongolia thing is really something I want to do. So keep me posted nice. if that opens up. Uh, yes, and I would, certainly I'll will. join you. That'll be ace. Awesome. Certainly will. Uh, and then finally, pay it forward. We've touched on a lot of good causes and stuff throughout this, and I, I will get them all listed uh, and make sure we get awareness to all of them. But if you had to give one final message on something that you want to pay it forward with, what would that be? Um, I think it would be for malaria, no more UK. You know, um, I think they're really doing everything that they can, volunteering all their time for free to to help fight this battle against malaria. You know, um, the world saw COVID-19. COVID has absolutely nothing on malaria. Malaria is a different beast, but we don't have it here in the UK. So out of sight is out of mind. But in Africa, in these other 
other regions, they really are suffering. And um, I think it's every two minutes a child dies of malaria. And in order to recover, the medication is the cup of a co- of a coffee, you know. But they can't; they don't have that money. They can't afford a, co- a cup of coffee, so therefore they lose their life because of it. Um, and so, yeah, I would definitely say malaria no more UK because they have eradicated malaria from many countries and they are they're winning the battle but they just need that extra help that extra support excellent very very worthy cause thank you ash we'll get that listed and, and get get more awareness onto that appreciate so, that so thank you for your time this has been a journey in its in its own right uh could yeah, probably man. talk to you for hours but uh respectfully your time thank you very much no, and I appreciate that. it thank, thanks for having me and uh good to talk if you're ever in London, let's uh, let's meet up for a coffee or a beer. I will do, mate. I will do. And with that, we bring the show to a close. Thank you.